Good afternoon, happy Father's Day, happy Sabbath, all of it. Thank you, Delwyn, for that introduction. That's a crazy picture. I get to speak last. Don't forget this when you're saying funny things about the preacher. <laughs> Delwyn's a good friend. Yeah. Today, with the time we have left, I intend to do three things. One is to give you an entire um, history of the Adventist church, all of it. Two, uh, my personal testimony, and three, a closing illustration. Are you ready? You think I joke. You're laughing like I joke, but I'm not. We better get started. The history of the Adventist denomination. Genesis 1, God spoke and said, let there be light, and creation happened. I'm beginning a little earlier than most of you are used to. If you're new to the Adventist church, um, our church begins a little later, but actually it doesn't. It begins in Genesis 1. Let there be light. God speaks. And creation happens because creation obeys. When the authority of God is present, when His voice speaks, when He speaks, creation happens. It obeys. The elements obey. Later, I'm going to skip some stuff. Later, John, the writer, New Testament, describes the coming of God this way. He says, the Word became flesh. That is the same Word that brought everything into existence, the same Word that spoke creation into being, is now one of us. And this same Word with us begins calling us. And we hear His voice saying something like this, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed Him. This word at once is a, an instinctive reaction when you hear the voice of God speaking. Just like creation obeyed, those who were hearing the voice of the Word with us, Jesus, God incarnate, when they hear His voice, they recognize the authority of the one speaking and they obey. They don't know who this man is, but they recognize the voice. And the voice doesn't say, come follow me, I'm going to make you rich, successful, healthy, respected. The voice doesn't say, come, there's going to be no risk involved. The voice doesn't say, come follow me for three years, we're going to live together, then they're going to cru crucify me, and then they're going to crucify you and kill you in some other ways. And also your families and your friends. Who's in? The voice simply says, come follow me. I'm going to give your life meaning beyond fishing for these things in this lake. I'm going to give you meaning and joy and satisfaction beyond your wildest dreams. And they obey. Paul, the apostle, before he was Paul, he was Saul. How did he encounter Jesus? A voice. A voice spoke to him and said in Acts 9, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And the voice answers. When, when Paul asks, who are you? It says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul surrenders his life to this voice that is called him. Remember, Paul never met Jesus in person. But he surrenders his life to the voice that calls him. And eventually, his life is so different. He'll write this to the Corinthians. He'll say, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. From prison, he writes this. This will become relevant in a moment. 
He writes to the Philippians, And my God will provide for all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. All of our needs, Paul claims, are met in Christ Jesus. All of our needs are met in Christ Jesus. Which needs are, are met for you right now, Paul, writing from prison? Well, all of them. Paul, who we spoke about a couple of nights ago here, Paul, who had been beaten and broken and bruised for the gospel. Uh, his hands are too crooked and messed up from beatings he had received. Probably the reason why he can't write with his own hand is writing from prison saying, My God has met all your needs in Christ Jesus. You have everything you need. Well, the voice speaking to Paul has also, I believe, spoken to those who have followed Jesus and met terrible suffering and terrible death and persecution. Recently, I took my family to the Getty Museum. We're privileged, my wife and I, to live in a, in a city that has great museums, and one of the greatest ones, the Getty. Once in a while, they have an installation, of a temporary installation, and I was drawn to this one because Jerome, the installation they had, Jerome, the French painter, is a realist. Because I did not have a good art education. Shelly, my wife, did. She can appreciate all kinds of art that makes no sense. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Ears and eyes all blended together next to a knee and pointing in all kinds of directions. That's not really art. To me, that's just doodling. But um, Endless fruits on tables. Um, I, I don't find that really appealing. But when you have a, a, what they call a realist, Jerome, the French painter, who paints real sceneries, I love that. That appears hard to do to me, so we'll go and see that. <laughs> Jerome has a painting that every Christian probably has seen, and if you haven't, you should. It's entitled The Martyrs. It is his imagination. It's how he explains what it must have looked like for Christians to die in the great Roman circus dying at the hands of these beasts that rose from the bowels of this circus of death. We walked around a corner and this painting, if you can imagine it, at least, at least 10 times larger than these screens, it is so captivating. It overcomes you. I was overcome by this. He painted Christians burning on the, on the edges of this scene on crosses. And he painted an elder standing in his little flock praying as they're about to meet their death. And, and there's a girl on the edge that looks just like my Alexandra, my daughter. Her face just like her. I, I wept loud in the Getty Museum. My kids walked away embarrassed of this man. <laughs> Why do you do this? Because I, I'm overcome with this. What? What were they thinking about? What was going through their minds before they met their death? Thousands upon thousands, rivers of blood flowed from this place. What could they have been thinking? I, I believe they had this in mind. We have all we need. We have Jesus. Jan Hus, who led the Reformation in an area where the Reformation failed in the present-day Czech Republic, 
was taken to his trial and before he was burned at the stake, he was given a chance to recant. And his reply was this, my God will meet all my needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He had everything he needed. And when that voice has called you and that voice has provided for you, you'll meet any challenge in life. Ellen White writes this about that day. When the body of Huss had been wholly consumed, his ashes with the soil upon which they rested were gathered up and cast into the Rhine, the river, and thus borne onward to the ocean. His persecutors vainly imagined that they had rooted out the truths he preached. Little did they dream that the ashes that they borne away to the sea were to be a seed scattered in all countries of the earth, that in lands yet unknown, Florida possibly, it would yield abundant fruit and witness to the truth. The voice which had spoken in the council hall of Constance had wakened echoes that would be heard through the coming agents. Huss was no more, but the truth for which he died could never perish. You can't silence this voice. It will speak. William Miller. Oh, that's our guy. Some of you who have been through Pathfinders or having this education, I recognize this face. Oh, yeah, that's our guy. Yes. Here we begin. Actually, we begin in Genesis, but here's, here's our guy. While studying Scripture, William Miller also heard this voice calling him. And this is what he wrote. He wrote, I had to admit that the scriptures must be a revelation from God. They became my delight, and in Jesus I found a friend. Of Jesus, he said, God opened my eyes, and what a Savior I discovered Jesus to be. My sins fell from my soul. The Bible spoke of Jesus. He was on every page. We often only speak of William Miller about, and we only associate the prophecies to him, but he actually wrote this first. He found Jesus in every page, and his followers heard him preach, and they also heard the voice of Jesus calling them, and they got together on October 22, 1844. What a terrible day. But on that day, they had one thing in mind. On this day, by the way, hear me, on this day, they did not have the truth of the Sabbath, Oof. Are you awake? Are you with me? They did not have a correct understanding of the Trinity. Ooh, look it up this afternoon, before or after your nap. <laughs> they did not have a correct understanding of the state of the dead. They did not have 28 statements of neatly organized statements of fundamental belief. They didn't even have rules about pork and coffee and gluten and tofu and chicken and cheese and soy and before before they had anything before they had hospitals and academies and church buildings they didn't own one single anything before they organized themselves into great systems unions conferences general conferences divisions they had one thing on that day they had an overwhelming, irrepressible, consuming desire to be with Jesus. Amen. They wanted to meet the substance of Jesus, Him. Now, Miller wrote after this disappointment, 
although I have been twice disappointed. <laughs> twice. <laughs> you think you'd learn. I'm not yet cast down or discouraged. I have fixed my mind upon another time, and here I mean to stand until God gives me more light. And that is today. Today and today until he comes and I see him for whom my soul yearns. You know something? Miller never wrote about streets of gold, giant fruit, tame animals. He wrote about Jesus. He wanted Jesus. For him, heaven was the presence of Jesus. What does our soul yearn for today? What does our soul yearn for? 40 years later, this is the history, our history. 40 years later, our pioneers, wow, they were bickering. We don't do that nowadays. We don't. We've learned how to get along, I know. But in those days, they were great arguments over seemingly really important things. In 1888, they came together. Two men, two Californians. It's always the Californians <laughs> causing trouble. And just to be clear, I live and work in California now, but I'm from here. <laughs> These Californians, Jones and Wagoner, they came up with this. I know some of you probably earned PhDs in this subject, but I'm going to oversimplify it for us to understand today. They came up with this great, crazy idea that Jesus is the center of our church, not the law. That we should be about Jesus. And so these, these Western conspirators, as they call them, came to Minneapolis. And all the church leaders came to do battle with them. One secular reporter wrote this about us in 1888. He said, the Adventists argue theology with about the same industry that an earnest man with a hatchet would assail a cord of wood. We're brutal. Other people tweeted that day. <laughs> the discourses are Christless. There was much disrespect of brother towards brother. Hurtful speeches were made against Elder Jones and Wagoner. The spirit of Minneapolis is synonymous with the spirit of disharmony painful. Ellen White wrote, Jesus was grieved and bruised by his saints. We do this to each other. Often. We'll say the most horrible things about each other in the name of Jesus. And Ellen White says we bruise and grieve him. And nowadays we do this with this cloak of invisibility we call the internet. We'll say the most awful things to each other. You will burn in hell or in San Antonio, wherever, whatever comes first. <laughs> Forgetting that our witness is compromised because of the way we treat each other. And those who are observing will say, if your leader said, by your love for each other, they will know that I am the Christ. How then can we witness to a world that sees us talking to each other this way? Even about things that we think are fundamental. Ellen White heard this voice 
1888, and she gave her support to these two Western conspirators. She wrote a most precious message she heard in 1888 was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ. She believed this. And so because of her support, open support for, for this message of Jesus, she was asked, invited to move to Australia. This is true. This is true. Some of you are, this is true. Yes, it's true. Now, someone earlier in another service, I'm you're saying she was exiled? I didn't say exiled. She was invited by the brethren, but she wrote painful letters about this invitation saying, I have no light from the Lord on this move to Australia, so I must trust the leaders of our church, but I don't want to go. <laughs> don't want to go. She went. Now, Ellen White was 65 years old in 1890. What was the uh, age expectancy, life expectancy of a woman in, in 1890? 65. They knew what they were doing. Tried to silence her voice. They put her on a boat. In, th in those days, it wasn't a comfortable ride across the Pacific on a Qantas airliner. It was a three-month journey by boat to a land far away. When she arrived there, she was depressed. She wrote painful, painful letters home homesick, until one day she heard a man named Prescott at a camp meeting at a place called Elmore near Melbourne, Australia. And this man so inspired, he preached Jesus all week long. He said, the truth must be understood in light of cr the cross. Ellen White set about to work in, in Australia, and she wrote only, exclusively about Jesus. I know some of you are eager to get home and check me out to make sure this guy is telling the truth. Is, is he one of those Western conspirators? Do it. I'll save you some time. Steps to Christ, 1892, from Australia. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, 1896, from Australia. The Desire of Ages, 1898, from Australia. All of these. She would ship them home. She shipped home the Desire of Ages. And the, and the brethren got it here, and they read it, and they wrote her back saying, we cannot publish this. It doesn't sound like your voice. It's too much Jesus. So she published it herself. She said, fine, I'll do it myself. When the Desire of Ages became just a beautiful, Adventists were embracing it and buying it. The church said, Sister White, give us the manuscript. We'll publish it for you, which is what we do. 1895, 1896, um, a man named Kellogg was wreaking havoc on our church. And so they asked her, please come home, Sister White, please. We need you. And her response was, no. Over and over again, no. I have everything I need here. What did she have? She had Jesus. Finally, in 1900, they sent a man, they sent a man named Haskell to get her. You would go too, wouldn't you? <laughs> this man knocks at your door. You're coming with me. 
No, I'm sure that's not his voice. He was actually apparently a very kind and beautiful man. And uh, she agreed, okay, I'll come with you. And she came back home and lived the rest of her days near Pacific Union College in Almshaven, writing about Jesus. They asked her to write a, mess- a, a book about the, our health message, titled it The Ministry of Healing. And so she did. I imagine the meeting at which she handed over the manuscript went like this. Sister White, we asked you to write about, the minister, about our health message. You wrote a, a book about Jesus healing people. <laughs> and I can just see her face going, <laughs> that is the health message. <laughs> Jesus heals. <laughs> um, near her death, one of our presidents at the general, conf- a general conference gathering He preached these words. He was so moved and influenced by the desire of ages. He wrote, the inmost central glory of the gospel, therefore, is not a great truth, nor a great message, nor a great movement, but a great person. It is Jesus Christ himself. Without him, there could be no gospel. He came not so much to proclaim a message, but rather that there may be a message to proclaim. He himself was and is the message. Not his teachings, but himself constituted Christianity. We have a center. It is Jesus, the Christ. He calls us in every age. He calls us in every, every general conference session. He calls us every Sabbath to himself. Come, follow me. Do we hear him? Do we obey my testimony? Behold Blanca Pol. She's 105 years old this year. No doubt committed to eating broccoli and kale like we all should be doing. (laughs) Blanca Pol one day living in Puerto Rico in 1934 looked across from her home to the home of these two young people, Josefa and Ramon Rivera, my grandparents. And she heard a voice tell her, walk across this street and give them the bread of life, Jesus. And she obeyed that day. She walked across, shared Jesus with them. And my grandparents, my grandfather Ramon would always tell me, we fell in love with Jesus. We heard him. We heard him call that day. (laughs) And then she said, come to a church that loves Jesus also. So they went to this church and They fell in love with our message because it was about Jesus. That is my heritage. People obeying the call. My parents, I want to show you a picture of my parents. Uh, This is us in Nicaragua in 1975, 76. Um, My parents moved a young family to a raging civil war in 1976. That is me, the one in purple. Lots of polyester going on there. I apologize for that. That's, that was the thing. Now, when I was at Southern College in the 90s, taking a class in Latin American histories, when it first occurred to me, you moved us to a war. I, I grew up thinking every child grows up with bullets flying over their, their home and helicopters flying overhead and their moms yelling, get under a bed. I thought, this is normal. This is the way we grow up until that class when I finally realized, no, (laughs) we lived in a civil war. And I asked my father all the time, why did you do that? 
And his answer is always, we were called. We were called, which is the way, by the way, our denomination would usually explain invitations to serve somewhere. I don't know if we do it that way anymore, but we used to say, we're calling you. You got a call, and you obey that call when you're called. You go, because it's Jesus calling you. You don't consider the risk. And my parents, like those disciples in Lake Galilee, they knew whatever's there is going to give meaning to our life. We're going. Jesus never said it would be safe, but he said you'll find joy. You'll do something so amazing, it'll transform you. I was called at Southern in 1989. A man named Phil Rosberg, a pastor, he, he shouted across the student center at Southern Adventist University, he yelled, hey, buddy, come work at camp. And I said, I, I, don't th I don't think I'm the one to do that. I'm not living the kind of life that would, you wouldn't want me around children. <laughs> and he said, I'm not calling qualified people. I'm calling those who I will teach, and, and you'll become qualified. I'm going to teach you how to do this. You're going to love it. Come, work at camp. <laughs> so he hired me, and I went. And during one of those summers, I heard a voice. One day, I can tell you exactly when it happened. I was hanging on a cross we made out of two-by-fours from Home Depot because we wanted to tell the story of Jesus to kids. We had no money, so we had ketchup for blood. We didn't have money for theatrical blood. So fire ants biting me or stinging me, whatever they do. I think it's biting, painful. Hanging on that cross one night, I heard Jesus say, I love you. And although the voice had been speaking to me all my life, I had never quite paid attention. And that night I did. I heard it. And the voice also said, and you will serve me. And you'll find meaning in serving me. And that's why I'm here. And that's why I do this. He called you. He calls you. Can you hear him? He calls our church. Can you hear him? If we're quiet enough and attentive enough, we'll hear him. A couple years ago, they brought a student to, me, to my office. They, the appointment said, she wants you to pray for her sickness. And um, they brought her in a wheelchair and they parked her in front of me. And I could see she had no use of her legs, so I knew, well, we're going to pray about that. And as she's telling me the story about how she got sick, she told me I, I, I contracted some virus of some sort that's deteriorating my nervous system. So I've lost use of my legs. I'm losing he my hearing. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. And as she's talking to me, I'm, I'm noticing that she's looking at five inches to this side of my eyes, not looking at me. So I decided to test things. I moved slowly into her field of vision. <laughs> and she moved her eyes this way five inches, so I moved back this way. And she saw me doing this. And she said, I can see you moving. <laughs> I know what you're doing. Oh, no. Oh, no. 
I'm so sorry. She said, well, I've lost my eyesight too. All I can see now is shadows. I can see some movement. I can see you moving, trying to figure out if I can see you, and I can't. Please pray that God will heal me, please, would you? And so I did. I prayed that God would heal her. And I did this for six months. She would make a weekly appointment to have the pastor pray for healing. Months into this, I began to say to her, maybe we should pray that Jesus will be everything you need because maybe this is not, this is your calling now to live like this. And she would protest. She'd go, no, no, no. Pray healing. I'm not giving into this. No, you pray healing. That's your job. So I had to sneak in the prayer at the end. God, well, God, heal her, heal her. And we trust you can. And we believe that. You have the power to do that. But if it's not your will, please help her to live with the knowledge that he has, she has everything she needs in you, Jesus. Thank you. Amen. And I got into her heart and her soul. And eventually, one day, she left for the summer. And I came back to my office, and my secretary said, uh, Caitlin left you a note. She handed me this piece of paper. So, well, the piece of paper is blank. And she said, well, no, it's actually Braille. She's been learning Braille. I said, oh, I don't read Braille. And she said, well, she put the alphabet down here, too, so you can actually play a little game to decipher what she wrote. Well, I'm not that smart. And I did. And I got two words in, and I knew exactly what she had written. I didn't have to do the rest. She had written... We walk by faith, not by sight. She had everything she needed. She had everything she needed. She had Jesus. Three months later, we're in my office after the long summer and all these crazy college students are loud and screaming and we're talking about what happened during the summer and we all know it is in my office and there's someone's been standing in the doorway for a long time waiting for us to be quiet <laughs> so i pause i look over and i see caitlin standing in the doorway god had healed her and she said she told me later they figured it out the doctors figured out some problem that was going on and she was beginning to have use of her legs and her eyesight. And standing in that doorway, she was pointing at me, tears coming down her eyes saying, oh, <laughs> you, you're Pastor Sam. I've known your voice. That's your face. That's your face. There's a day, you hear me people, there's a day coming when we, if we have been attentive, attentive to the voice that has been with us since the creation of this world, the one voice that said, let there be light, and creation obeyed, the voice that called disciples to serve him, the voice that sustained all of our pioneers through disappointments and death and terrible persecution, the voice that called you and called me, if we've been attentive to that voice, there's a day coming. Oh, I know this in my heart and my soul, and I've staked my life on it. There's a day coming when you and I will stand in the presence of Jesus. And if we've been attentive enough, we will also be able to say, <laughs> that's your face. Oh, it's good to see your face. I've known your voice. I've known your voice. May that day come soon. Amen. Amen.